Jason, I don't have the 615 person. I got the 630 person. It's 6 o'clock. It's Wednesday evening. It's the Mark Riley Show. I am he. Jason Taubenfeld at the controls. Flying low. Feeling no pain. And Jason got like a supersized bag of Fritos up in there to get him through this out. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, listen, here's a word of warning. Since I'm not on on Friday, but Jason, I do this as a public service to PRN listeners here in the New York City metropolitan area. You going to freeze on Friday. It is going to be beyond bone chilling cold. From the weather forecasts I've seen. Now, it's supposed to be a little light snow tomorrow. Of course, it could turn out to be a blizzard the way the weather forecasters have been going so far this winter. But let's leave that aside for a moment. The bottom line is they're all predicting that by Friday, the high temperature in Manhattan may not get to 15 degrees. And the low, the low could be as low as like two So forewarned is forearmed. You know, if you know somebody who may not be getting adequate heat, and when I was walking up here earlier this evening, I heard uh, two people. I overhear people talking about all kinds of things. But I overheard two people talking about the woman's office being so cold, uh, some lady that was supposed to have a meeting with her wouldn't even show up. (laughs) So I can imagine. I hope, uh, put it this way, I hope they did not postpone it until Friday. Because if her office is cold now, it's going to be ridiculous by Friday. You know, uh, Jason, this was one of those weeks where I sat around yesterday and thought to myself, oh, my God, what am I going to talk about on this show? And then, like, within an hour, hour and a half, because Jason will tell you, I actually do some research before I do this program. Uh, I got all of these stories started coming up. And I said, how did I miss all this stuff? It turned out I didn't really miss a lot of it. Uh, some of it was, like, ongoing. Like, for example, when I first heard about Brian Williams, you know, the host of the NBC Nightly News, uh, he had been given a timeout or gave himself a timeout. But then, like, an hour and a half, two hours later, came the news that he has been suspended for six months without pay by NBC. Now, forgive my cynicism, PRN listeners. Forgive me for what I am about to say. But understand something. When these people get up there and start talking all this high-minded crap, well, he violated every standard of... You don't have any stinking standards, all right? Let's start there. He may not have any, but don't act like y'all are so high-minded and that's why you suspended him. Brian Williams is the number one... Anchor, NBC Nightly News beats the competition at 6.30 p.m. on weeknights. Don't think for a minute that that didn't make the difference between them suspending him for six months and dusting him outright. In other words, if he was number three, he'd be gone. Is that cynical, Jason? Is that cynical to say? Yeah, it is. (laughs) See, Jason's brutally honest about this, but I got to be brutally honest with you. I have seen this kind of stuff happen before. Now, you know, the word is that Brian Williams 
jumped up and, you know, spoke out of school, exaggerated, as it were, about uh, being in a helicopter that was forced down some time ago. And somebody got tipped off at Stars and Stripes, and they confronted him about it, and he was like, oh, man, I messed up. All right, fine. Okay. Uh, but, you know, these, these, folks, these folks are hilarious. Now, I will say uh, a qualified congratulations to, you know, Lester Holt, who I always thought did halfway decent work over there and is now going to be elevated to the nightly news spot I assume for the next six months, because he's been taken over from Brian Williams since Brian Williams sat himself down. But every stinking story I see about this talks about how Lester Holt, man, he's, he's not very well known within the network. He's a, in other words, he's a lightweight that can't do the gig. When all you have to do is turn on the TV and see that's a load. He can do the gig. You know, and and Brian Williams had aspirations beyond his anchor chair, apparently. The number one evening news show. Apparently did a bunch of bunch of gigs on SNL, Saturday Night Live, which is cool. You know, you you want to do uh SNL that, that that's cool. No problem. Uh but it says to me that he Probably thought he was pretty funny. I don't know if he was, because I've never seen him. I, I haven't watched SNL since the late 70s, early 80s. All right. But here's kind of sort of what bothers me. Now, mind you, you know, the criticism of his exaggerations have gone on ad infinitum. All right. Uh, you know, I guess social media was made to jack up Brian Williams. Okay, fine, if that's what you want to do. If that is how you want to spend your time, cool. Uh, Apparently, he was informed of his punishment Tuesday morning. He went to the Upper West Side Apartment of Stephen Burke, the chief executive of NBC Universal. Only the two men were present, according to a person that wasn't in the room but was briefed on the meeting. And Mr. Burke informed Mr. Williams that NBC had decided to suspend him. Now... Jason, here's the crap, okay, because I, I got to let people know about this. Quote, by his actions, Brian has jeopardized the trust millions of Americans placed in NBC News. Blah, 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 blah. His actions are inexcusable, blah, 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 and this suspension is severe and appropriate, blah, 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 blah. Come on, man. Come on. See, I would respect these people, and it's not just NBC. Everybody in the media acts like this. God, I'm getting old. I'm, I'm actually, like, letting loose like I didn't used to back in the day. Everybody acts like this, okay? Did the same thing with Don Imus. All right, suspended him for a couple of weeks, see how the advertisers react. And when the advertisers, that was to that Rutgers University nappy head hose thing. When the advertisers reacted badly, they dusted him. Had nothing to do with morals. Had nothing to do with the standards of uh, what was then, oh, God, who was that? Wherever he was, <laughs> and, 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 you know, this has got nothing to do with the standards of NBC. This has got to do whether keeping Brian Williams around will eventually cost the network money. Now, if they think that they can suspend him for six months and bring him back, and he'll eventually become number one again, then that's all good. Severe and appropriate. 
Uh, and of course, they didn't, you know, their top people were not available for comment. Uh, Deborah Turness, the president of NBC News, quote, this was wrong and completely inappropriate for someone in Brian's position. Okay. It was. Uh, I, I mean, that may be the extent of the truth telling over at NBC News. Okay. Uh, but here's, here's, you know, like the other shoe in all this. Um, nobody had his back. Jason, none of his colleagues stepped up and said, hey, man, he messed up, but, you know, punish him and let's move on. Nobody. Now, this may have to do with a number of things. See, in-house gossip in media, in-house backstabbing in media is a fine art. See, you may work a regular gig, all right, and somebody doesn't like you, maybe a peer doesn't like you. And, you know, y'all you know, go back and forth and back and forth, and eventually something may happen. But there are channels and processes, et cetera. No channels and processes in media. Somebody doesn't like you. Engineer doesn't like you. <laughs> Next thing you know, you flip to a story, and it's not there. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it, it doesn't get that crude. But the fact that nobody stepped up to back this chump is telling. Okay? And I say chump. Only because you don't need to do this. You don't. You know, and there was a piece, I, I, I think it was in The Observer or somewhere, where they talked about some of the women anchors and reporters who have actually gone through experiencing fire. Christiane Amanpour. Chris, I thought for a number of years there would never be a conflict on this planet that Christiane Amanpour wouldn't decide to go cover just because that's what she does. And she does it very well. But Christiane Amanpour doesn't get the light of day as, as far as like a national, you know, she doesn't get that. A lot of women don't get that. And I mean, Lester Holt is a black person. And I, I just find it amazing that, uh, you know, Lester Holt, and I'm going to read you exactly what the New York Times, and I don't know who they talked to, but I'll tell you what they had to say about Lester Holt. And I've seen this in, like, more than one media report about Brian Williams, okay? Because it, it, it's, it's telling. To me, it's telling. And I, I don't think it's race-based. I really don't. I don't think this has anything to do with race-based. Uh... Here we go. Mr. Williams' departure further diminishes the vaunted standing of the nightly news, nightly network news anchor. Last year, ABC News chose to keep its chief anchor, George Stephanopoulos, as co-host of Good Morning America and elevate David Muir to the evening anchor chair. And Mr. Holt, that's Lester Holt to you, 55, while widely respected, is not as famous a figure at NBC as Matt Lauer the co-host of the Today Show. So uh, what, what is he going to do? Put a banana peel in the men's room so Lester slips on it and can't take the gig? Uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's... Jason, what is this? What would you call this? It's a hot mess? There you go. It is, in fact, a hot mess. Now, later on in our show...
we'll talk about the imminent departure of what I think will turn out to be an iconic figure who has delivered news and commentary to the American people. We'll get to that, though. Closer to home here, what I swore up and down was an accident, a grand jury has decided is something quite again. We're talking about the shooting death of Akai Gurley. This is a young man who uh, was in a darkened stairwell in the pink houses in East New York when a police officer, Peter Lang, fired a single shot that killed him. And, you know, they, they said, first of all, that, that Akai Gurley was a complete innocent, which he was. They said that uh, uh, Peter Lang was walking around in what's called a vertical patrol with his gun out, which probably he shouldn't have done. Uh, and he said, like, it was an accident. But at this point, a grand jury, impaneled, by the way, by Brooklyn DA Ken Thompson, has said otherwise. I, what startles me about this, and maybe I haven't just seen the latest news, you know, because we, we do this show when the news is on, but I ain't heard not, not a Patty Lynch from the PBA about this yet. Jason, you heard anything from Patty Lynch? I haven't heard a word. Usually Patty Lynch is just, what, 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 what do you, what, what? Not only did they indict this guy, but they indicted him on the top, on the top count they could get away with, which is manslaughter. They also got him for criminally negligent homicide, reckless endangerment, second-degree assault, and two counts of official misconduct. Now, this is deep. This is especially when you look at what happened on Staten Island, which most people who had seen the video of Eric Garner and Daniel Pantaleone, uh, Pantaleo, excuse me, uh, would never confuse with an accident, okay? That does not look like an accident. I thought, and I got to be honest with you, I thought this looked like an accident. And I'm not saying because there was no video. Happened late at night. I believe it was November 20th. Uh, and uh, I just thought, like, you know, the guy might have faced departmental charges, but not criminal charges. Now, there was a big burgeoning movement, not just in Brooklyn, but around the city, that called for Peter Lang to be indicted. Well, he's been indicted. I don't know if they convict him. Maybe they'll convict him of criminally, criminally negligent homicide. Uh, far be it from me, the second guest, D.A. Ken Thompson, why he went after the guy like this. However... It is instructive. It is instructive because when someone believes they are taking a fair and impartial look at a set of circumstances, and when I say fair and impartial, that means not giving any more weight to a police account than to witness accounts or human beings' accounts, and they decide to indict a police officer, so be it. Now, the last two times... Police officers were indicted. They were not convicted. Some of you may remember Sean Bell. That was once. That was in 2006. And, of course, Romarley Graham. And that was also 
an indictment but not a conviction. The burden of proof to convict, according to the New York Times, beyond a reasonable doubt, is far higher at trial, and defense lawyers can present their own best case and cross-examine witnesses. Now, let the justice system do what they must with this. But I must say, and this ties into something that I'll talk about a little further down the road, I must say that, you know, because they say this in passing, it was a darkened stairwell. Was it darkened on purpose? No! It was darkened because the lights stinking didn't work. I'm sorry, that's that's not the way to say that, but what the heck. I'm old and feeble, I can say pretty much, well, I don't want to say I can say pretty much anything, but the lights didn't work. Now, they're not going to bring up the person that was responsible for keeping the lights on in that stairwell up on charges. They're not going to do that, and maybe they shouldn't. But I think it's worth noting that there's another culpable entity here. Because none of us will ever know the name of the guy that was, or the woman that was supposed to fix the lights. But there's another culpable entity here who will never face charges. And that's not to say that, you know, I have a, a great deal of sympathy for Peter Lang. He never should have been patrolling with his gun out. You know, I was scared. Yo, sell insurance. Don't be part of the NYPD if you're going to walk around with your gun out because you're scared. Let me just leave that one there. From East New York, Brooklyn, we travel to Alabama. A woman who was, quote, standing up for gay couples' rights to wed was arrested after she offered to officiate a same-sex marriage in Otanga County's probate office. That would be Otanga County, I'm sorry, Otauga County, Alabama. Okay. Uh, the state of Alabama is rebelling against the notion of having to officiate over same-sex marriages. In fact, the probate office stopped performing marriage ceremonies, period, last Friday, according to the Montgomery Advertiser. I'm old enough for this kind of behavior on the part of Alabama to ring an ever-so-slight bell. You may, well, some of you who are older may remember George Wallace, the governor of Alabama, when he stood in front of a schoolhouse door and said, we we ain't integrating nothing. (laughs) I'm paraphrasing, obviously. We're not integrating anything here. And I I, got to say this, all right? If Alabama wants to march to the beat of its own drum, thumb its nose at the federal government when it feels like it, course that's not when they get government money for stuff but i'll leave that aside for now if that's what they want to do fine leave that's right get out form your own country you don't have to have states rights you can have national rights you can be the nation of alabama and those of you who hate gays and want to, you know, burn immigrants at the stake and whatever else it is y'all want to do down there, fine. Do it. Just don't bother the rest of us with this stuff. Jason, these people are crazy. They're crazy. And, and I mean, look, let, let's, let's 
say the woman's name, and Susan DiPrizio. She was charged with misdemeanor disorderly conduct for defying a judge's orders to leave the probate office. She knelt on the floor in protest. Now, the state started issuing uh, uh, marriage licenses to same-sex couples on Monday when the Supreme Court said it wouldn't stop them. But, you know, the, the, the closing of an office or people jumping and saying, well, my beliefs won't allow me to do that. Okay, fine. Have your church get you another job. Have your church provide you with a livelihood, if that's what you want to do. And if Alabama, and I I mean, I keep seeing these stories about, you know, the vast majority of people, particularly in rural counties, and then see what, what some people do, what some commentators do. And I hate to say this, some progressive commentators do this. They say, well, you know, they're rural, they're conservative, they're white, they're ignorant. Nah, nah. I, you know, they may be wrong. They may be 1,000% wrong. And I may say, let them all, you know, put them on a nice flow and let them form their own country. But don't, you know, that, that whole hillbilly redneck thing, it's old, man. It's tired. And I say that as somebody who disagrees fundamentally with the position these people take. But don't lump them all together. You know, don't act like there's no hope for them. Maybe there isn't. I don't know. But I don't like to lump people together and say, well, there's no hope for these ignorant people. I don't care what their color is. That's just messed up. Absolutely messed up. Now, you want to talk about messed up? I'm going to tell you a little bit about messed up. Many, many years ago, I had some friends who somehow ran afoul of the New York City Buildings Department. The Buildings Department back then, and this was in the 70s, 40-some-odd years ago, the Buildings Department was described to me by a number of people back then as the most corrupt agency of city government. Now, this wasn't Bill de Blasio's city government. This was a beam city government. That's how long ago it was. And it seems, Jason, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Apparently, 16 city buildings inspectors were on a take to the tune of $450,000 but when you start looking at this, actually, the bribery charges were filed against 50, count them, 5 defendants. 16 of them were inspectors, plus a host of property managers and owners, expediters, contractors, and, wait for it, an engineer. In total, 156 buildings in Brooklyn, in Harlem, in Midtown, and in Flushing, Queens, were involved. 26 indictments were filed by Cy Vance, the Manhattan DA. And even the Daily News talks about a stunning portrait of greed. 
Jason, we have time. Yeah, I guess we got a little bit of time. I, I, I got to tell you all about this because this is amazing. Now, for those of you who don't know what the buildings department here in New York does, it approves all new construction and major renovation work in the city. And the inspectors have a lot of clout in terms of how fast or how slow a particular project gets done. And, of course, the builders, if the project gets done slow, suddenly are out stupid money. Okay, now, according to the Daily News, the worst offender here, allegedly, appeared to be Gordon Holder, chief of development for the buildings department's Brooklyn office. He resigned in November. He wasn't identified but was secretly charged and is apparently cooperating. Singing like Pavarotti, y'all. Holder, not Eric, Gordon, and his wife, Janelle Daly, who was also arrested, had a corrupt agreement with a guy named David Weiser. He was an expediter hired by Brooklyn developers. Now, listen to this. Jason, listen to this. We're in the wrong business, man. The wrong business. Check this out. Weiser allegedly made $200,000 in mortgage payments for Holder, bought the couple a Nissan Rogue SUV, and a GMC all-terrain SUV, sent them on an $8,000 Royal Caribbean cruise. That's not the one you see advertised in the paper for $2.99 per person, I might add. And funded renovations to their three-bedroom home in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Weiser, who apparently decided to take it on the lamb, as they used to say in the James Brown band, moved across the street from Holder's home eventually and drove him back and forth to work most days. That's from Allentown to Manhattan, which is a four, actually to Brooklyn, four hours round trip. Whew. Unbelievable. And that's just one example, ladies and gentlemen. Last fall, a developer decided to add two stories to a synagogue in Borough Park. And apparently the foundation of the building couldn't support the additional two stories. But he worked with a guy named Artan Mujko. And Mujko green-lighted that project. The DOI, that would be Mark Peters and his crew, checked the building and found cracks running down an exterior wall. The city deemed it structurally unsafe and halted construction. Now, what that means is that the city of New York is playing hide-and-go-seek with its own employees. Because had the building been occupied and something gone wrong, God forbid it it collapsed or something and people got hurt, and then everybody's covering their behinds, including these buildings department people, 16 of them, who work for the city of New York. And what was apparently the case 40-some-odd years ago is still the case today. In the old days... My friends were people that ran clubs and parties. And in order to, you know, keep their thing going, they had to pay off the buildings people. Pay them off. Cash on the barrelhead, many of them. Some of this stuff, by the way, has the sticky fingers of the mob involved. All right. I'll leave it at that because we've got a very special guest who's joining us to talk about a story that I, I, I'm literally speechless about. There's a man 
in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, who has been charged in the murder of three students. Daily News calls it deaths. It was murder, allegedly, near the University of North Carolina. And I was absolutely dumbfounded when I saw one account that said, and I don't know where they could have gotten this except for the guy they arrested or who turned himself in. Uh, apparently, it was some kind of ongoing dispute over parking. Parking? You murder three people over a stinking parking space? I'm not sure. But joining us to sort it all out for us is our good friend journalist, Ms. Nitha Khan. How you doing? Hey, Mark. How are you? Uh, this This thing is just, it bugs me out, you know. Yeah, you and me both. Well, it's me, a horrific story. Horrible, horrible, horrible story. Horrible story. Tell us a little bit, uh, uh, for the audience that may not have heard much about it, tell us what happened here. So these were um, three students um, going to the University of North Carolina, and they lived, I believe, right near or not too far away from the campus where this horrible shooting took place. Um, and, and this happened yesterday around 5 o'clock, uh, you know, according to 911 calls. There were about, like, 5 to 10 shots had been fired, and they were basically killed execution style. Uh, and like you just said, you know, according to the suspected murderer, he's saying that this was over a parking space. His wife came out today and did her own press conference saying that, oh, there were no anti-Muslim sentiments. This was just over parking. And now the police are also going with the narrative that this was just over parking. And as goes, so is the mainstream media saying that this was just a parking dispute. But at least some people are questioning the fact that, hey, there might be more to this story than just that. Uh, meanwhile, the family of the three victims, you know, family members are saying that this needs to be investigated as a hate crime. People need to look into it. It cannot just be, the, you know, the end-all, be-all that this was about parking and that's it. And I personally, like many other people, as I'm sure you saw on social media and everywhere else, totally agree that there needs to be a very, very thorough investigation into this matter because we cannot just sit back and accept, you know, a narrative that comes from one side of the only person who's living and the other three people are dead. I got I to gotta say, the first thing that struck me about this, when I heard the parking space rationale, which was not when I first saw the story, but I'm mm -hmm. thinking to myself, like, would this guy have capped three of his bar buddies over a parking space? Or three right. guys that, you know, he hung out with on the job, and maybe he didn't like them or something? Uh, right. And I, I don't like to racialize everything, but I got to say, this, you know, this whole notion that, so, you know, the the guy who allegedly did this has been allowed to craft a narrative that everybody buys. Right. It's exactly. a shameful byproduct of this thing. Exactly. And even, you know, even let's say there was a dispute over parking, right? We don't know. We I wasn't there. You weren't there. None of us were there, yeah, exactly. right? Like, let's say it was over parking. That oftentimes may just be a trigger. That doesn't mean that this guy didn't have some sort of ingrained bias, preconceived notions. We don't know that. And those things and that sort of racism is one of the hardest things to prove and one of the easiest things to discount and dismiss and say, oh, hey, this had nothing to do with that. And unfortunately, when you have media and popular culture that continually 
put the messaging out that Muslims are nothing but terrorists, that they're just radicals, and this is seeped into people's minds on a daily basis, are we really surprised that some people are going to have those kind of ideas in their own mind and act out on them? And it may not always be in this violent way. It may just be on a smaller level, too, that still results, results in very, very devastating, um, you know, impact on, on people and, and people's lives. And it's a very, very scary situation. You know, what I, find, yeah, what, what I find interesting about this is that this guy Hicks, apparently, uh, you know, uh, uh, some people might jump off and say, well, he's a charismatic, he's got to be a charismatic Christian or something. Craig Stephen Hicks. Uh, it turns out he's an atheist. Right. According of, to yeah. right. According to the Facebook post, the people which you know are haven't been fully verified by everybody, but according to what everyone is saying, reporting that his Facebook post um, had messages of like anti-religious things for all religions. Um, that's what's been reported so far. Now, let's say for the sake of argument that his narrative is true, and that this mm-hmm. was over a parking space. And, you know, he, he just had this, you know, uh, outrage about it and killed mm-hmm. three people. Now, he's been charged with first degree murder. What do you think is going to happen to him if he is convicted? Right. That remains right. The, the big question, if he's convicted, if he's convicted, what's going to happen to him and what is he going to be convicted for? Like, I'm really curious to see if hate crime charges are thoroughly investigated, what the police in that area plan on doing, if the feds plan on stepping in. I mean, this is a very, very troubling situation. And I think all of us need to step back and kind of pause for a moment and think about the narratives that we shape and how that creates to a climate of hate across the board and what kind of messages are being sent out on a regular daily basis. And I think that's why you saw such a huge backlash uh, on things like Twitter and social media where people were a, they were, you know, completely pissed off and angry that the story wasn't being covered, and they were saying things like, well, Muslims are only shown in the context of being the perpetrators of violence and not as the victims. So because Muslims are never humanized, people were just ignoring this story. So that was, you know, the, the number one thing, and that's why you saw the big push and, and, and the call basically calling out traditional media for the lack of coverage of it, and it wasn't until that it started trending worldwide. I mean, it was the number Number one worldwide trend pretty much for like the entire day and even now i believe it's still like number three or number four on twitter and it wasn't until people did that that you finally saw you know main mainstream cable networks finally starting to cover it and i think that says a lot about where we are in terms of journalism and in terms of social media and thankfully because of things like that there is an opportunity for a regular person and for people and marginalized communities to call out those who shape these narratives, because for a long time they had no voice, and and things like social media allow them to have that voice. Remember, that's what we saw with things like Ferguson as well, where it's like people on the ground said, hey, something's going on here that doesn't look right, we need to look into it, and they started creating buzz and noise, and then other people jumped on, um, you know, and started looking into it. Absolutely. Journalist Nitha Khan is our guest. We're talking about the murder, some might say the massacre, of three people in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. One man uh, has been charged with the murder. I believe he turned himself in, as a matter of fact. But let me mm-hmm. ask you this, Nitha. Um, there is, I think, among some people, uh, you know, they, they see uh, ISIL and ISIS and all the rest of these organizations around the world executing mm-hmm. people, and and, you know, they don't really ascribe it to the group 
they ascribe it to Islam. Right. And therefore, when something mm-hmm. like this happens, uh, people's reactions are tempered by news of beheadings and that sort of thing, even though the people that were involved here were practitioners mm-hmm. of Islam, had absolutely nothing to do, nothing right. to do with what right. ISIS or ISIL or, or the rest. And it seems to me that that is a much more intractable problem than a lot of people think. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, and these three people were just like the most amazing people. Like you, the the one guy, um, Dia Burkhat, like on his Facebook page, he was talking about how on January 29th, they provided free dental supplies and food to over 75 homeless people in downtown Durham. And then, you know, he plans uh, this summer to go to Turkey to provide dental care to refugees from the civil war in Syria. So just amazing people all around who are all about giving back and helping and uplifting all kinds of different communities. And that's, you know, that goes back to what I was saying, that we don't ever see Muslims portrayed in this light. They're only shown in the context of A, the other, and a terrorist and the perpetrators of violence. And like you were just saying, that when ISIL or a terrorist group commits one act, it's like 1.6 billion people are then told that, oh, A, we must condemn it, and then B, we're all somehow responsible for it. I'm sorry, but I don't see, like, all white men having to condemn what this guy Hicks just did. Like, it's just absolutely ridiculous the way this stuff is drummed out and drummed up and how people, you know, are just forced to live in this environment that we've created. And a lot of it does, I'm, I'm totally blaming, like as a journalist, and I'm sure you know too, there's such a huge, huge responsibility for how the news is reported and what kinds of conversations we're having. So I always, you know, like in my pieces, I'm sure you've seen, like even mm-hmm. in the last piece that I did for Huffington Post, um, it was called is a hell of a thing and it was about that about how we don't have nuanced conversations and about how we a lot of times like muslims are not even brought into the conversation while discussing islam or extremism within the religion and it's like that you're just doing a huge disservice to the public and to journalism itself you know Nissa, i saw something earlier today that really kind of made me think because it looks like there's an ongoing social media movement now similar to black lives matter called Muslim Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And I mean, God bless him. Godspeed. But I thought when I looked at that, that maybe what needs to happen is that all of these different groups that are asserting the fact that their group has lives that matter, they all need to come together at some point. At least that's well, the sense I get. I think they are. I would argue they absolutely are, um, because if you look at the Black Lives Matter hashtag and all the protests and all the organizing that took place, it was people across the board. You saw young people, mostly young people, that crossed all kinds of religious, racial, socioeconomic lines that were aligning themselves because they understand the danger of inequality, the danger of criminalization of certain groups of people, the danger of, you know, marginalized groups constantly being marginalized, and they're banding together and discussing these issues. And a lot of times, like, even with the Ferguson hashtag and the Black Lives Matter, people would throw in a hashtag of, like, Gaza under attack because they understood that what's happening over there is a form of oppression that is similar to, or or you couldn't say that that's a form of oppression and there's a form of oppression here, and we need to tackle all forms of oppression. So I would actually argue that it is, especially with young people, because they are much more immersed with one another and they understand each other's struggles and they communicate on a level that, like, older generations really 
haven't as much. We embrace each Thanks other much more. Thanks, for making me feel old, Nissa. <laughs> no, no, I didn't say you. I didn't say you. I said older people. Yeah, you know, well, I, that would be hey, me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not that young anymore either, so, hey, I don't even know where I fall in that category. <laughs> but now, Nissa, do you think that there will be a wide, broad, and diverse group of people who gravitate to Muslim, uh, Muslim Lives uh, Matter the same way they did to Black Lives Matter? You know what? I was encouraged because obviously the Muslim community and Muslims around the world were completely upset when this story was not being covered and being ignored and completely like just in shock too and, and started creating the hashtag. But I was encouraged by the fact that there were many other people who were not Muslim that were also doing it as well. I mean, even journalists and, and people who aren't in journalism, regular people too, actually discussing the fact that, hey, why are we not talking about this and why is this receiving coverage? So I, I am encouraged, and I always like to remain hopeful that because of things like social media technology and ways of connecting with one another, that we can move more towards unification and away from these sorts of divisions that are, like, very strategically created a lot of times. Like, let's just keep it real and let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always like to remain hopeful that there is a move towards that. And, it, you know, that's not to say that it's, going to be an easy or, you know, it's not going to be an uphill battle because it absolutely is. I mean, you have like, you know, certain things in popular culture and media and everywhere that very strategically put out these narratives. So pushing back against them is a very, very um, hard and difficult task, but i like to remain hopeful that it is possible. Uh, before I let you go on a different subject, mm-hmm. what, what did you think of what NBC News did to Brian Williams? <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm torn about that topic because, it, obviously, from a journalistic standpoint, absolutely, you cannot, you know, em- make up, embellish, whatever you want to call it, stories. But then on the flip side, I'm like, okay, so he, uh, you know, lied allegedly about what happened while he was in Iraq covering the war. But the people who led us into the Iraq war and lied about the premise of the war have never been held accountable. And I'm like, okay, it's great to hold Brian Williams accountable and that's fine, but it would be nice if those who, you know, cost hundreds of thousands of Iraqis their lives and thousands of our troops their lives and trillions of dollars, it would be nice if somebody would hold them accountable as well. Yeah. You think uh, he deserves six months off? Hey, uh, why not? You know, six months, I don't know. We'll see. And, you know, well, it's unpaid six months, um, but I'll be curious to see if he actually does come back after the six months because, you know, six months is a huge, that's a very, you know, a very know. long time. It's especially an eternity. In this business. It is an eternity. I mean, especially in this business where things are on like a sound bite, quick second basis, and it's like you're going to be out of the conversation and out of everything for six months. It's a very, very long time. Absolutely. So I don't know. I don't. This may be their way to slowly push him out of the door, but then by the same token, he does have a contract that I believe is through the end of the decade, pretty much. Yeah. So unless there's some sort of legalese that they can get out of it, out of the contract, um, I don't know. I, I Honestly, I don't know. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Absolutely. Nitha Khan, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Always good to be with you, Mark. You take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Nitha Khan, you can read her work in the Huffington Post and many other websites and blogs. So, it's 17 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. And we're going to make the most out of the next 17 minutes or so, because I, I still got plenty of stories here. And you heard Nitha mention uh, Ferguson. 
I got a story out of Ferguson, too. I got a story out of Ferguson. I got a story about chokeholds by the NYPD, and their number is growing, the ones that are substantiated. Uh, what's going to happen when NYCHA keeps selling off, to private interests, I might add, shares in public housing? And guess who is a big wage stealer? Uh, and I'm not even going to give you a hint about that. Jason, can we take a break? Oh, I, I'm not sure we can at this point. I think there may have been somebody that was, uh, was there, is there anybody holding on? My wife just texted me that somebody was holding on, but I don't know. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, and my wife says she can't hear the show again. I don't, I don't know what's going on. Uh, let's check and see. He is on. Okay. Well, let's say good evening to my good friend, Michael S.W. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Mark. Can you hear me? I can hear you fine, man. How you doing? Hey, I can hear you well, too. So now we got that out the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know, I called you because um, I know it's been a while since we last spoke, mm-hmm. and you, you're aware of what went down in Brooklyn today, the indictment of that police officer? That was the second story I covered today. It was. Yeah. All right. Okay, I was having a little problem here on my computer, and I know uh, my wife course, has the same problem, so you're not alone. Oh <laughs> um, yeah, you know, God bless her too. At least she made me feel better. You know that it, the problem's not on my end, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know something, I find it absolutely um, reprehensible. Of once again, um, the police union president Patrick Lynch making a statement calling for everyone to give the uh, police officer the benefit of the doubt. He deserves due process and all the constant... um, Patty Lynch did something today? He said something? Yep, he sure did. Because he's been pretty quiet for a while there. Well, I I knew it wouldn't be um, that long for him to stay quiet because he's always, you know, instigating problems with his rhetoric and his mouth. You know, he says that the police officer deserves due process like anybody and everybody else would expect to have due process. But this is the same guy, I'm referring to Lynch, that literally wanted to lynch the protesters because of what happened to those two police officers in Brooklyn. No doubt that was an absolute injustice of what happened to those police officers. But how Lynch turn around and put the blame on pro on peaceful protesters and on Mayor de Blasio just wanted to literally condemn. Well, hey, listen, Michael, he, he was one hundred percent wrong about that. But let me ask you this: Yeah, uh, do you think that Peter Lang uh, is innocent until proven guilty? Pretty much, he is innocent until proven guilty. But the problem here and. I just heard the details, you know, from the news, and I want to follow up on this, is that according to the arraignment, um, first off, he had his hand on his gun and had the gun out. The gun was out. That's been established from day one. The gun was out, uh, and and he was scared. He was scared, but that was a violation of the patrol unit. Patrol guidelines, yeah. The patrol guy, right? So that's a big problem right there. And then after he mistakenly shot the person, 
um, he and his partner were discussing, like, how the hell to handle this and all that. And meantime, the guy is just laying there bleeding and dying. He could have been saved. I mean, I can understand if he was scared after what the devil had happened. But still, come on. I don't know how in the world two rookie police officers were teamed up instead of a rookie officer being teamed up with a veteran officer, which I think, is now Michael, in they, the worst. I, I think they may have changed that after this they incident. Just, yeah, they did. Uh, uh, so they, that they, and and you're right. Uh, I mean, your point is extremely well taken. It makes yeah. no sense whatsoever to pair two rookie police officers on a vertical patrol, which, by the way, by itself has come under harsh criticism, even from police officers. And Mark, I am so mad at Lynch because he says that the officer was patrolling in a highly dangerous building, which is absolutely false. The only danger there was was a broken elevator and lights that were out of order. The staircase was dark on several floors, and people have called and complained about this for months. Well, now, Michael, here, here, here's Bloomberg a question for you. Here's a question yeah. for you. Um, who should be held accountable for the fact the elevator didn't work which forced the Kai Gurley to use the staircase, and the fact that there were no lights in the staircase. Who should be held accountable for that? Who should be held accountable? The last administration, because the complaints go as far back as when Bloomberg and Kelly were in. Instead of them harping on stop and frisk and then wanting to engage in racial profiling, there were other matters that needed to be taken care of. And I'm quite sure, had the elevators been working intact, and or especially had the staircase been fully lit, we probably wouldn't be having this discussion. No, no, especially you know what, yeah, Michael, you're absolutely right. I got to go, but you're absolutely right. The thing is, there are people. It's not a matter of just being an administration. There are people, human beings, whose responsibility it is to have a working elevator and who has a responsibility, who have a responsibility you know, to make sure lights work. Now, if you look at city-run facilities generally, and Jason, I know you know this is true because you're a New Yorker, you will see subway elevators that don't work. You'll see housing project elevators that don't work. You'll see subway escalators that don't work. You'll see staircases that don't have lights in public housing that don't work. What do they all have in common? They're all theoretically, at least in part, on the, when it comes to the subway, operated by the city. And, and uh, by the way, you could throw into this, who are these buildings department people? You know, you could throw them in the mix as well. But I'm going to leave that alone for a minute because I want to get a couple of stories in before we leave. And we don't have that much time. Ferguson is back in the news. And, and see, now, this, this is uh, part and parcel of a level of oppression that is frightening, even more frightening than some of the levels of oppression here in New York. In Ferguson, you could get a traffic ticket that could land you in jail, and not just in jail, in a putrid jail cell. A group of civil rights lawyers is suing Ferguson, alleging it detains people in grotesque, squalid conditions when they are unable to pay common penalties and court fines. The lawsuit was filed last Sunday on behalf of 11 people. And they claim that the city of Ferguson has, quote, built a municipal scheme designed to brutalize, to punish, and to profit. 
I'm going to say that again. Built a municipal scheme designed to brutalize, to punish, and to profit. And who do you think they brutalize? Who do you think they punish? And who do you think they make money off of? See, this is why the city of Ferguson needs to have the black people that live there come out and vote and get rid of, politically I'm talking about, get rid of the people who created this system. This is ridiculous. They were threatened, abused, left to languish in confinement at the mercy of local officials until their frightened family members could produce enough cash to buy their freedom or until jail officers decided days or weeks later to let them out for free. That's according to the lawsuit. You know what that's called, Jason, in plain English? Extortion. (laughs) That's what that is. These people are extortionists. They're never going to, you know, any more than that that DA out there is going to face any criminal charges. They're not going to face any charges for this stuff. And uh, here's an example. One plaintiff, Tonya DeBerry, was arrested for failing to pay multiple traffic tickets last year. This was in Ferguson. She spent two nights in jail before her daughter could pay her bond with $300 borrowed from a neighbor. She does not work, relies on disability and food stamps. The added financial burden of paying bond made it even harder to pay her traffic fines. Just traffic tickets, she says. No criminal act. Nothing. If you have the money, you would never go through this type of situation. If you don't have the money, it's jail. Jail. And it's not just Ferguson. There's another town, Jennings. Same thing. So... Last year, here in New York, bringing it back here, a police oversight board substantiated six complaints by people who said New York City police officers had restrained them with a chokehold. This may be familiar to some of you. A band maneuver that was used by an officer in the, uh, that would be Pantaleo in the encounter, in, uh, encounter with Eric Garner. The number, it's only six, supposedly. While small, it is a notable increase. Think about this. From 2009 to 2013... Mike Bloomberg's last term in office. The Oversight Agency, the the Civilian Complaint Review Board, substantiated a total of nine chokehold complaints. That's over five years. Now we got six last year, 2014. The rise in verified chokeholds underscores a fact tacitly acknowledged by police officials, according to the New York Times, that the move is used more than has been publicly known. Now, here's the thing. It may be more than is publicly known to some, but to those who have gone through it, to those who know people who have gone through it, it's not not publicly known. All right? Go out to Brownsville, you go out to East New York, go to some of these other places, they will tell you, yo, these cops, if they don't think they can take you down, if you're big, if they know you and they don't like you, or if they know you and they figure you got a previous criminal jacket and it's going to be tough to get you in cuffs for that reason, they're going to put you in a chokehold if they can't figure out any any other way to do it. In most substantiated chokehold cases, the CCRB has recommended that the police commissioner impose the stiffest form of departmental discipline, which can include suspension or termination. The board did so in five cases, but rather than severely penalizing the officers, the NYPD has in recent years meted out little or no punishment. Nuff said. Now, President Obama 
has sent a letter to Congress seeking authorization to uh, start a military campaign three years against Islamic State. It says in the New York Times it would avoid a large-scale invasion and occupation, but in addition to air power, could include limited ground operations by American forces to hunt down enemy leaders or rescue American personnel. Now, let's get this straight. I don't like ISIS. I don't like ISIS. I don't like ISIL. I don't like IS. I don't like any of that. But this limited thing that the president's, uh, uh, you know, asking God, most of the people in Congress say, gee, thanks for telling us. That's what they're happiest about. They don't seem to have a clue, nor does the president, I must say, about the potential slippery slope here. And I believe it could be a slippery, slippery slope. Enough said. I got three minutes left and I got about five stories, so I'm going to have to do this quick. John Stewart is leaving The Daily Show. Jason! John Stewart's leaving The Daily Show, man. Guy's been there for 16 years. Ironically enough, I worked for a while with the woman who actually created, the co-creator of The Daily Show, a woman named Liz Winstead, lovely person. Um, the Daily Show has become a source of news and commentary for a generation of people. And that is John Stewart's legacy. If he doesn't do another thing in life, John Stewart has changed the way a generation of people and maybe succeeding generations of people consume news. Uh, and by the way, who would have thought when that show first started, when John Stewart first started, because Craig Kilborn was the first host of The Daily Show. John Stewart took over for him. Who would have thought when John Stewart started his run that his leaving would even be national news, which it is. It is a different way of looking at the news that John Stewart has given to all of us. And I thank him for it. I think he's done a great job and he deserves some rest if that's what he wants to do. Uh, the head of NYCHA, and uh, again, uh, this, this makes me very nervous. Uh, apparently, the head of NYCHA thinks that it's really great to uh, engage in these public-private partnerships. I don't like them. I don't trust them. She thinks they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not with it. I'm not with it. And they've apparently already done a deal. Already done a deal. Um, it's drive me crazy. Anyway, I don't have much time left. So here's my to the ridiculous story. Hey, Jason, I can sum this up in a couple of a couple of a couple of phrases, huh? Better pizza, cheat your workers, Papa John's. <laughs> How about that? Does that work? Papa John's is paying out almost eight hundred thousand dollars in back pay to workers it cheated out of wages. Now, a court, this is here in New York, all right, court found for more than six years, employees of M-Star Pizza Incorporated, which operates seven Papa John's, rounded each employee's hours down to the nearest full hour, cheating hundreds of employees out of their full pay, as well as underreporting hours worked and not paying overtime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this comes from the Wonkette, by the way. We thank them for their great work. That's the jobs creators for you. 
I don't know if I'll ever watch another Eli Manning, uh, not Eli, Peyton Manning football game because he's the big spokesperson for Papa John's. Time for me to get the deuce out of here. <laughs> my thanks to Jason Taubenfeld, Will, and my thanks to Gary No, I know he's not in town, but my thanks to him as well. We'll be back next week, 6 p.m., God willing, in the creek don't rise. My name is Mark Riley. This has been the Mark Riley Show. Have yourselves a great evening and a better week ahead.